Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast and live stream. So this is a bit different. We're actually in my living room, and this is my mum. Hi, um, My mum's actually been working. You've been working at Progressive Property since almost day one, haven't you? Yeah, I've been working 11 years. Yeah. Six months, four days. <laughs> is, was it that Two painful? Minutes yeah. and 34 seconds. Yeah. I've loved it. Loved every bit of it, Rob. And the reason we're doing this uh, podcast today, this live stream as well, is because um, mum actually asked to do it. It's uh, Mental Health Awareness Week, and it's quite close to us and our family. And it was something that you asked to be on the show, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I asked you to do this. And I, I, I did give you a couple of chances to back out of you it. You did, yes. Um, but mum really wanted to do it. So why... Do you want to be on the show? And, and what message do you want to get out there? Well, the message really is for carers. So um, the thing is, uh, my husband is bipolar, your dad, and it is a living hell when dad comes down with an episode of bipolar. But he's, he's fine he's, because he's in his world. And with his ideas, and he is absolutely on top of the world for the most part. There is the depression bit, of course. And it's the carer that suffers, that has to put up with this, that has to make sense of it, that has to support their loved one that seems to have disappeared, and they have to cope with living with a complete stranger. And I believe that the missing link in recovery for bipolar people, sufferers, is that the carers need mentoring. So if I had been told to do lots of things when dad first came down with manic depression, I think I could have coped with it better, could have protected our savings and had just had a more general understanding of what was about to happen. But instead, I just learned as I went along. In fact, I have something here. That I is, noticed you've done your nails for the show, Mum. I have. Oh, very nice. And someone pointed out I was matching <laughs> as well, which is rare for me. I hardly match. So this is the only thing that I have ever been given to help me with bipolar or coping with dad's bi bipolar. And if you Google help for carers, the first thing that comes up is that um, NICE, which is a medical body, say that there isn't enough help for carers of bipolar. So I think if, if the medical profess profession, the... Um, mental welfare profession, 
was to concentrate more on helping the carer and training the carer, I think more families would stay together, more marriages would stay together. And so that's why I'm here, to try and get that message out. And also, I've been looking at what I can do as an experienced carer, and I think I've found my key thing. Okay, can we come to that in a minute? Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people watching have personal family experience with bipolar, mental health issues, which I'm really pleased is getting more press now. We're... We know Frank Bruno really well, and obviously he's gone through that, and he's a great champion of it. Um, but I want us to go back, and I want you to, if it's all right with you, of course, anything you don't want to say, just say, because um, I've obviously got my experience, you've got yours. You know, when you, when you first, looking back, when you first noticed it, how long ago was it that it started to happen? And take us on a bit of a journey of what it is and how it manifests in people with, obviously, my dad's experience. Okay, well, it was 15 years ago. I remember 2005. So, yeah, that's 14. So 14, 15 years yeah. ago, yeah. So the first thing that I noticed was Dad's personality started to change. And I called it at the time, it was like a magpie had come along, pinched a little bit of his personality and left someone else's. And that happened over a period of months. What changed? What, what in the personality changed? Um, he, Dad became unkempt. He didn't really look after himself. Dad's always been immaculate. He was very lured in his, his what he said to you. He said things Graphic. out of character. Yeah was really rude to, to people in a sexual way. Because um, he was always rude in a funny way, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Faulty Towers, but Basil Faulty was my dad. Mm. And, um, but it was a charm about him, wasn't there? People yeah. loved it. Yeah. It was like a show. Yes. It was like coming <laughs> to the theatre and having a meal. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then that, he started to lose that element and only had the sort of the downsides of it, would you say? Yeah, I would. Yeah. And he, he started writing a book. And Many it was of his just crazy books he's written. Yeah. He's probably written more books than I have. <laughs> yeah, but it's just rubbish. It's full of rubbish. But he didn't understand it was rubbish. Mm. And he would get up in the night and would just start writing his book again. He'd watch, I remember he used to watch Dallas. And he almost became the characters in Dallas. It was the most surreal thing I'd ever experienced in my life. Mm. So each day, these, I just likened it to these magpies. They just kept taking some sort of, some, some of his personality, but leaving the opposite. So Dad eventually turned into everything that he abhorred in life. He turned into this sort of laddish person that overdrank, oversmoked, overate. Um, he just turned into an absolute slob and he was the complete opposite of what he really was. Mm. When, when he's in manic mode, that's what happens, doesn't it? Everything is, is exaggerated. What I've found difficult to deal with is, okay, we're used to it now, but sometimes when dad would be in his really high, he'd be really happy, he'd be elated, and you kind of think, oh, dad's okay. 
but they were kind of the worst points. So just everything was heightened. His delusion, you know, like he'd think that every publisher on the planet was going to make this book mm. a New York Times bestseller. Um, he'd come up with these crazy ideas. Crazy. I mean, I have some silly ideas, but crazy ideas. Um, like you said, the amount he eats, he eats to make, he eats and he's sick and then he eats again, then he's sick, then he eats and then he's sick and then he eats, then he's sick. The cigarettes he smokes, 40, 60, 80 a day. I, I um, went out with him just recently when he was in hospital again and I went out and he had a, a cigarette and he sat there sort of hunched and I've never seen anything like it. He went. <laughs> and he took nearly a whole cigarette in one drag. Nearly a whole, and I just saw it go, and then he just dropped it mm. and didn't put it out. No. He pulled another one out immediately. And, yeah, so I remember December 2005, right around his birthday, mm. when he had, you must have seen it before me because obviously you're closer to him because you're his wife, um, when he had that major breakdown in the pub. Mm. How do you recall that? That, you know, the biggest thing for me is sitting in the police station in Peterborough, trying to make sense of it all, of, of what had happened, and seeing Dad absolutely and utterly destroy a psychiatrist. She, he just stripped her of everything and she had to leave she couldn't cope she was in tears and I thought my oh, goodness me if he can do that to a psychiatrist I've got no chance yeah because I still didn't know what was wrong and I had to kind of I didn't lie but I had to overemphasize dad's behavior for the other psychiatrists that had been sent in in replacing the first one that couldn't cope to explain that that was not my husband sitting there, that it was somebody totally different that I didn't know. And that's when they decided that to section him. And I was relieved for his own protection because I couldn't, you see, there was one occasion when he got so angry with me uh, and I was just trying to help all the time that he picked up a bottle of scotch and drank it in front of me, just downed it in one, and then toppled at the top of the stairs. And I don't know how I stopped him from falling down the stairs, but my guardian angel gave me some strength that day. And, you know, Dad, Dad couldn't go on living like that, smoking like that, drinking, eating. And so it was sort of, that's kind of all I remember about that day. Was just do you being remember him being arrested by the police and sort of kicked? And yeah, I do actually. Down and, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, because I remember that was yeah because when he was carving and then he right. just stopped. Yeah, and he started squealing and shouting and screaming, and I managed to get him out the front of the pub, mm. full of. Because for me, it was a shock. It probably wasn't for you because it had probably built up. Mm. But you know, for me, I see my dad, who's always been my hero. You know, and he's pro my dad. I now know retrospectively protected me some, from some things, like trying to put me through private school and you guys, you know, really hustling to get the money for that and that being hard for him and giving me a job in the pub. You guys always gave me a job, but, you know, I think you knew it wasn't my destiny and 
you were just there Absolutely, su supporting yeah. me, but I was having a little bit of a phase in my life where I was a bit lost. But I also came back to help because I came back from uni and worked in the pub because you were like, something wrong with dad here. Mm. Can you help? Oh, yeah, you've always been 100%. Yeah. But I remember outside the pub getting him out the front of the pub and Nicola coming out screaming. Mm, I do remember and, now, yeah. Um, and they were brutal with him, the police. Yeah, because I can remember one of them knocked Dad to the ground and I can remember saying, he's very precious to us, leave him alone. And because, I mean, we just didn't know what was going on. No. It was crazy. You know, there's, and they had a tiny van. Yeah. So they had to virtually push him. It was like trying to put a German shepherd yeah. into... In a, in a cat box. Yeah. Yeah. And you remember those, um, they had, I've never seen them before, but they have these things that they tie you up with. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah. Yeah, I remember, like, that's, that's my moment of biggest shame in my life mm. because I remember standing there really wanting to protect him. I, that, I was quite good at martial arts then as well. Mm. And I really wanted to get involved, but I froze, just watched it. Mm. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, that was the driver for, for, you know, me wanting to be successful and setting up progressive and all of that. Because um, obviously, it's, you know, that, Progressive at my, at my companies has been good for the family because of, you know, the income it brings in. Um, so what do you think caused it? There's a lot of open loops here and we're going to close them all up. Mm. I'm, I'm aware we've, we've half investigated a few areas mm. and we'll finish them. But what do you think caused it? I think... What caused it was dad not having the skills to open up and to say how he really felt because he is well, he's 75, he's 11 years older than me and um, he was also brought up in Yorkshire. So he was brought up as a man and that he did man things and um, so he, he was told to just be a man and get on with it and, you know, just, um, what am I trying to say? Um, hide your feelings, uh, not to show your feelings. So was Dad like that with you? Yeah, I mean, I used to have to find a way of helping him so that he thought he'd done it himself um, because that would just be embarrassing for him to think that, his wife had had to help him out of something. So I would have to find suggestions and nurture him and mm. find a different way for him to solve a problem. Because I, I don't, I'm, obviously I'm biased, it's my dad. I don't think I've met anyone on the planet that could fix a big problem as quickly as my dad. Like, dad took us on this crazy ride in life, let's be honest. Yeah, it was. Just still is. Full of. Yeah, yeah. full of. Excitement. Some excitement and mm -hmm. some big risks. Yeah. You know, like betting horses, winning the final 25 grand to be able to go and buy your next business when you're about to lose everything. Mm. But like you could give dad the roughest pub in the country and within three months he'd have kicked everyone out and have a carvery in there and he'll have respectable customers and food yeah. in there. And I, I just like couldn't believe I could do it. And like, you know, always hustling to get the school fees paid. And if I ever had a real problem, I never went really went to my dad because I was a bit scared of looking vulnerable to my dad i'd normally go to you but man he could just fix a problem the hardest problem mm. and i remember like being very impressed by that but 
the only time my dad ever showed any emotion with me was when our dog Bruno died. It was the only yeah, time. you were going to say that. The only time. You know, I remember being really young and he used to kiss me on the forehead and I loved it. And I remember him really young. He said, we don't do that anymore, son. We shake hands now. And I felt like a man, becoming a man. But I also mm. wanted... Yeah. I remember when I was young and he used to carry, carry me up to bed and he used to pretend to be asleep even though I wasn't. But that all went because I guess he wanted me to be a man. And, mm. you know, the, when I was overweight and the bit of the bullying that I got at school and all that, I could... Dad would just be like, you know, you want me to play rugby, be a man. And... Um, I can imagine he never asked for help. I can imagine he never wanted to show weakness. And I know in my life when I've bottled things in, that's when I've lost it the most. Because mm. um, I have in my life been a bit of a bottler. Mm. And Dad's had no one to talk to for, well, obviously, obviously you, but he doesn't want to. He wants to show you a proud husband. But didn't, his, didn't, didn't my nan, his mum, die when he was two? Yeah, he was actually three. Right. So he was brought up by um, his dad and a stepmother. What was dad's dad like? Um, I don't know. Because he's never told me any. Yeah, see, that, that's a, a bit of a cloudy area because he, was, he couldn't cope. So if you just go back all those years to the resources that, dad's father had when his wife died he was left with four children so he needed somebody to look after him because there wasn't benefits and welfare and help and the internet mm. he just needed somebody to look after his children so that he could continue to work uh so he he just virtually married a person to look after his children mm. and they didn't get on and dad's biggest childhood memory is sitting at the dinner table and there wasn't enough food to go round, but everyone would have a plate of food in there in front of them, except for his stepmother who'd have a piece of bread. And that probably caused the biggest impact of his anger and um, ever. Mm. And he's always been very careful that everyone has got enough and everyone has got what they need because uh, he said that was really difficult to deal with. Mm. And his dad didn't know how to nurture and train and mentor, so he, he just became a bully. And dad, you know, there were stories of, of dad not having a very good existence, really. Mm. So dad just became a bit of a rebellion and left home as soon as he, as he could. Yeah, dad's definitely a rebel. So mm. um, come back to that as well in a minute about where, what caused it. Um, I just want to slightly lighten the mood before we go back in mm. because some of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life are from my dad. Mm. So um, my dad, I don't know how many times he's either been sectioned or been in Ward 5 or wherever, the mental section of the hospital. Mm. And there are some pretty well-secure wards there. How many times has he escaped? Oh. <laughs> Hundreds. Hundreds? Yeah. So... He'd call up the staff in my office. You know, Tom, obviously you work with Tom. He calls, he, he, he works out who he can get on side. Mm. And he gets yeah. into this devious mode. And he's like a plotter and a schemer. Even his voice changes. 
and he's had my staff come to the office, bring him a freaking ladder so he can climb over the wall. He's just climbed over the wall. God, I mean, he's 16 stone, probably 17 stone now. Climbed over the wall, gets him to bring in tools so he can escape, manages to talk all the people in the ward to giving him the key, gets out through three or four secured doors, mm -hmm. always phoning up Mark, trying to get stuff out of Mark. <laughs> Well, I went to visit him one day and I saw this um, holdall bag come flying over the wall. <laughs> followed by your dad's head. <laughs> but, of course, he couldn't, he couldn't scale the wall, so he just slipped back down again. <laughs> and there was another time when I went in and he was so nasty to me, I walked out, but it was a ploy so that I'd get in the car and he could escape out the back and then catch, flag me down in the car to, to go home. So it was just a ploy, mm. really. But the um, bipolar mind is a very, very strong oh, mind. Yeah. Very determined. Mm. Do you remember when he um, went to home base, got one of those, like, not a trolley, but almost like a, a pallet with wheels on it, you know, those big ones, and um, loaded it, barbecues, six, seven hundred quids worth of stuff. And walk straight out, walk around the corner, walk back and um, tap the security guards and said, I've just nicked 700 quid's worth of stuff. You guys are shit at your job. They fucking arrested him, mm. didn't they? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember he was so proud of that. He was. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you want my favourite one? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of brought it along with me, and it wasn't to poke fun at Dad, but it was to show how a, a bipolar person works. So for a couple of episodes, Dad's written books, and when he's recovered, we've talked about these books that he's written. So the following time he came down with manic depression or an episode, he had obviously figured in his head that if he started writing a book, I think, you know, the alarm bells would ring and so I'd be on the road to getting in some help. So this time it was an invention and I still piss myself off this. It's just the funniest thing ever. So I've been all over the country with Dad and his invention, sitting in, in very established engineering firms, sitting in offices while Dad explains what he wants them to make. He's bloody good at getting gate through gatekeepers mm. as well, isn't he? And getting to it. Yeah, I mean, I could do something like that in our company. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, go on. So he did. Um, nobody could quite understand what he needed. And, and he, I mean, I just, it was still at the time when I didn't fully understand bipolar. So I was just sitting there thinking, well, there's nothing I can do, so I'm just going to just act normal. But these people must have thought, my goodness me, I'm in such a surreal world. So Dad came home and he put a prototype together. So the first thing he came up with was this. That's right. it, is it? That, but that's the first. But it's three, there's four components. So that in Dad's mind, will become a tin opener. So he wasn't quite happy with that. So he needed something else to make it work. And that was the next thing. <laughs> so 
So this is what I'm up against. Yeah. This is serious stuff. He, it took him a day to discover that this needed to go on the top there and then this would become a tin opener. But it wouldn't work because he couldn't get it to open a tin. So, yeah, you can hold that. We literally went to a place locally to an engineering firm who made the thing that was going to make the difference. And this, Dad got a taxi from the, um, the ward at the hospital and did all this without anyone knowing. How much was the taxi, I mean? Well, I don't know. We'll come back to that anyway, carry on. Okay, so he came back with the, this was the key to the whole thing working and that went on the top and that is a tin opener. He was absolutely 100% certain that that was a genuine product and would work. And that was so strong that you couldn't, that's how mad bipolar is. And I hope that somebody's watching that's going to say, yeah, I know all about that. Because mm, we're obviously not laughing because no. it's funny, funny. We're laughing because it's a funny moment in a not very funny yeah. situation. We know, Dad. Um, but by the way, my dad is one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. He um, is. Well-read. Mm. Um, He's very clever. Very clever. Mm. And, but there's... How do you not look at him and go, Dave, what are you doing? Well, I, I, I said, well, show me how it works then. But he, he just gets round it. He just absolutely gets round it. So in his bipolar head he thinks that that is a genuine thing and that he is just the most amazing person to have invented it and everyone is going to be interested mm. so then he starts taking that and showing people mm. thinking that they're going to say wow i'm going to buy this off you this is going to make us a fortune mm. and that is just purely it is funny but it's just to demonstrate what you're up against when people come down with mm. bipolar episodes. It's not cut and dried. So what you think caused it was being proud and strong and not asking for help. So can you expand a bit more on that and what you think led to it? Yeah, we see his brother, his youngest brother, Bob, um, who you were named after lived in Australia and had cancer and he, his wife wanted him to take, I know I'm not speaking out of turn here, but she wanted him to take um, as much medication as he could to prolong his life and he didn't want to do that. He wanted it to end because he just, he couldn't cope basically but he did it for his wife and he went through an awful lot of trauma, but he did it for somebody else and not, he didn't choose, he didn't do it for him. So he relied on dad for the support and dad would phone him every single day and I could hear the agony that dad was going through, trying to give Bob the support that he needed and just general conversation and, and Dad would put the phone down and I'd say, so how's, how's Bob getting on then? And Dad would say, yeah, it's okay. And he couldn't get that out, so he was absorbing all of that. Because mm, Bob, Auntie, Eileen, 
you know, like his family went quite quickly, didn't they, at all? Yeah, well, Colin, his eldest brother, was 16 years older than Dad. Yeah. And when Colin was ill, Dad used to go up every single yeah, night remember, after yeah. work, mm. stay overnight, come back early in the morning. Yeah. You know, he'd, he'd um, that's what he did. He was really there for people. And the reason he'd come home is because he... He wanted to be with his family in case we needed anything. And then his sister, Eileen, she was 12 years older than him. But Bob was only eight years older, so he was very close to Bob. Mm. Um, his sister, Eileen, said that um, she was the, only, the first person to ever show him some colour in his life and some love um, until he met me. Um, but, you know, they were of a different generation when Dad joined the RAF, uh, he had to be stationed with his brother because Dad had a reputation of being quite fiery and mm. troublesome. So Bob definitely put him on the straight and narrow. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, they mm. were very close. So you think the suppressing of all of that emotion, do you think, it, do you think a general hard life had anything to do with that because you guys worked in pubs your whole life? Dad would get up at 6am. Let's be honest, you'd get up a bit later. <laughs> you, Late as possible. Yeah, you're not so much the morning person. But I'm still going at 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, there you go, yeah. Mm. So Dad, but Dad would go at 11, 12, 1, 2, 3 in the morning mm. and then get up at 6am oh, every yeah. day. Yeah. 35 years. And then because the pub trade got harder and harder, the smoking ban, you know, and all this stuff. Yeah. I felt like it just wore him down. Because when Dad was 48, he looked about 38. When he was 52, he looked about 60. That's mm. how I remember it. Mm. And I felt like it was a culmination of all these things. You guys didn't get enough holidays. I mean, you had the caravan a bit and, you know, we'd take over. But you'd, even when you did that, you got one night. Do you, yeah. think that, do you think all of that was a lot to do with it? Yeah, it could be. Because, I mean, you, you, you health-wise, were fine in your 40s and then your arthritis just, like, almost 50-ish. Mm. I mean, put your hands up. I mean, that, you've had that for... Yeah, a long time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So one of the reasons we want to do this podcast video is to get more, or you, is to get more awareness about mm. mental health challenges. So yeah. I think we can summarise what we've covered so far, which is ask for help. Yeah. Ask for help on behalf of someone, or if you feel you're struggling, ask for help. Mm. That's definitely helped me in my life. I mm. do ask. I know you probably don't think I do because I don't lean on you and Nicola and Dad for help, but I do ask for help, and I have mentors and, you know. Well, you always promised me that if you needed help, you would actually and, say. And if it got really bad, yeah. I would. Mm. So, um, and I'm a different generation to my dad. Um, what other message do you want to get out there? You said about the carers. So what do you have to go through dealing with someone with a, a mental illness? Tell us that. So when, when dad, dad first came down with manic depression, we were in the pub and it was a very, very public life. And we kind of just had to get on with things. You, I think, were you doing your art at that time? I, I just felt... Yeah, I was sort of still working... A few evenings and weekends. Evenings and weekends. But yeah, yeah, but I was doing my art in the day, so I wasn't working full time in the pub anymore. 
Yeah, so sort of half out. So I always thought that my top of my list should be keeping the pub going because that provided us all with our income. So when you were an artist and needed your income topped up, I felt that we needed the pub. Yeah. And Dad was gambling a lot. So I just needed somewhere for us all to live if we needed it and that we could all learn from. Nicola was working for us as well. And so that was my priority, to keep it going no matter what. And if, I mean, the internet didn't exist then, but what I'm looking for is to be able to search bipolar and it comes up help for carers right at the top. So what help do carers need? So they need to learn that bipolar people need money. They need some money to waste and do whatever they want and you've just got to let them get on with it. But? then all your savings and all the money that you've got for your retirement needs to be absolutely safeguarded. And that isn't just put into another account. That is, I don't know, I, I don't know the answer, but maybe I'd give it all to you if all those years ago. Perhaps yeah. that's what I should have done. Just yeah. said, look, take so all this money. Has most of your retirement money been yeah. spent by dad then? Yeah, well, gambled away. Yeah. It's just totally gambled away. Yeah. When I realised and tried to protect what was left, it was kind of too little, too late, really. But then because I'd changed all the cards, changed all the PIN numbers, accounts, everything, Dad just found other ways of getting money to do whatever, well, to gamble. Mm. He just, I can't tell you how determined bipolar people are. They just Mm. never stop. They're relentless. So what other things do carers need to know in addition to managing and protecting the money? They need to understand that their loved one disappears and they've just gone somewhere, but it is only for a holiday and they will return because I've never heard of anyone that's never recovered from bipolar. And you have to accept that you're going to live with a stranger and what for would, a good few What would you like months. to have been told about living with a stranger? Um, that... He would, um, I'd like to, oh, that's a difficult one. So the money thing, that's top of the list, that it's very important to protect that. Um, I think mindset, because I was looking at dad's body and not totally realising that it wasn't dad going on in there. I just thought he was having like mad moments. So I was looking at somebody that I'd always 100% trusted with, well, 110% trusted, and I didn't question things that he was doing for ages when he said, oh, he could turn this 100 quid into a 1,000 because he'd done it before. Mm. And when he started writing, I mean, I was very supportive and I used to write synopsis for him and send him off to publishers and you know, I was quite proactive in helping him, um, but there was just so much that I couldn't get my head around. That, but specifically, I'm struggling to, to think of specific things. Okay, what about um, getting them help? Because as a family, and I'm not making criticisms of health services, etc. I'm just no, saying what we went no. through. But as a family, we found it really hard to get support. 
And it seemed like you had to tick about a million boxes and go through 58 meetings. And, you know, and unless he was there squealing like a pig and, you know, threatening people's with violence, you couldn't get him into hospital. And you've tried many times to get him into hospital. And you've never been proved wrong where, like, actually he was fine. So mm. you've always known when he mm. needs to go in. And sometimes you've gone through weeks or even months worth of fighting and not getting anywhere to get him looked after. Mm. What do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, I can understand why that happens because in the 60s, they discovered that there was a lot of people in the mental in mental health institutions that shouldn't have been there because it might have been a woman who had a child out and wasn't married or somebody had just had a mad moment yeah. and had ranted at a gentleman, say. Mm. Um, so I realised that the rules are very, very hard and rigid. But so, yeah, there's a thing. If there was a support group for carers where somebody walked in to your ha house and said, right, it's going to take you six months to get your husband into hospital because they won't take him in unless he becomes a danger to himself or me. Yeah, but I mean, he was cooking food and leaving it on. Mm. And, you know, like possibly burning the house down mm. and eating himself to making himself sick and then going again. I mean, how much more does it need? I mean, because I remember coming over, you asked me over that one weekend. Yeah. Um, and basically just said, what needs to happen for him to get the fuck into hospital? Do you need him to kill someone? And do you need him to have a heart attack? And he brought a pair of scales. Yeah, I did. And like... You don't need a pair of scales. Look at my dad. His belly's up there. Oh, yeah. oh, wait a minute. Yeah, he's three stone overweight. Well, we'll monitor that. How, how fat does he need to get? Absolutely. And he brought those scales because he hadn't believed me when I said that dad had put on all that weight. So he brought the scales to prove it. And I'd never have got there if you hadn't have been there. Because I was just at that ranting mode and screaming mode and you were, you'd got a sensible head on your shoulders. And, and so it was the next day that the psychiatrist came out to um, review Dad for sectioning. Yeah. But he needed somebody from a different region to visit Dad, a psychiatrist, to have the same conclusion in order for him to be sectioned. But even he said to Dad, I'll give you 24 hours to think about it. Yeah, and I, I remember Dad. He's, like we said, he's quite clever. So my dad hates hospitals. Uh, he hates doctors. Hates it. It's like it's a weakness again. It's that thing again. Mm. And he resists and resists and resists and causes all sorts of shit. And in the end, he'd just go, yeah, all right, I'll come in tomorrow. Mm. And he just knew how to fob you off mm. and get the psychiatrist out of the place. Mm. And then, of course, he wouldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. So I managed to persuade the psychiatrist to uh, get someone else and that he was, dad was going to go into hospital that day come hell or high water. Mm. So he did. But, yeah. of course, you know, dad just waited for me to turn me back for two seconds and he was off. And yeah. I was sat, ended up sitting on a bus with him going into town because he was just trying to get away. Yeah. So... This podcast and most of my followers are startup or scale-up entrepreneurs. Um, the reason I was with your blessing, you wanted to do it, 
happy for this to go out is because I do get quite a lot of people who message me now, I'd say daily, and sometimes more than one a day of people who are really struggling, really struggling. Now, I always say this, and I want you to really burn this in your mind. If you're really struggling, message me and we can have a 10 or 15 minute phone call. Um, and I, I tend to do one of them a day at the moment, mm. and that might go up. Um, I'm not a trained psychiatrist. I'm not a professional carer, but I'm someone who's got a dad who's gone through this, and I'm someone who knows what it's like running a business and knows it can be hard. Yeah. And I've had some conversations with some people who've had a lot of shit in their lives. Wife's raped. What, one, um, one lady, I mean... I'll say his, his first name because I'm not going out of privilege because you wouldn't know his last name, but Paul, I spoke to Paul. And all sorts of horrific things happened to his wife. Mm. He's a positive guy, and I know he was really grateful for the call I had with him. Mm. Um, a lady who phoned me up and said, I'm struggling to do viewings because um, the last time a viewing happened, my, my husband went out on a viewing, he had a car crash, and he got killed. And like, I'm just, people go through mm. shit. Oh, they do. And you don't Absolutely. really. Absolutely. You don't realise the shit that people go through. Um, but you can't suffer alone. Well, if you do, then this is what's going to happen. This is what happens. This is, this is the point. If you don't reach out, this is exactly yeah. what happens. Mm. And I'm a bit of a bottler myself. Mm. Um, so I know how it makes me feel inside. So the first thing is you must reach out to me if you're really struggling. You know, like I can't make promises, but most of the people I've spoken in fact, all the people I've spoken to, I'm really good at lifting people up. I'm really good at giving some solutions. Mm. It, obviously, if it's like life or death, you probably do need to get professional help. That's the first thing. The second thing is a lot of entrepreneurs go through this. And my dad's an entrepreneur. I mean, mm. he is more entrepreneur than Richard Branson because mm. he's had more ideas. And he's had pubs, clubs, bars, hotels, restaurants. He's always started because my dad's never had huge money. He's had times in his life when he's done well. Yeah. But he's always had to buy the roughest pub, the deadest restaurant. Mm. and turn it around because he's not had massive capital. So my dad is an entrepreneur and, and definitely that's relatable to this. And entrepreneurs who start up a business, it's their passion. They love it, but it's harder than they think and it takes longer than they think. And, you know, like, and then it, you can get depressed and it can be hard. And I think having good mentors, being in good peer groups, being in the disruptive entrepreneur community, just saying, hey, look, I'm really struggling with this, that... It's four or five steps later where things get really bad and this mm. sort of thing happens. Yeah. And it's also, it can happen to anyone. It's not like it can happen to the proudest, smartest person. It can happen to anyone. And I've seen it with dad. Like you've got, you may have your view. But for me, for dad, it was a really hard life over many years. It was a really hard childhood. But it, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in 20 or 30 years. It no. took 40 years. Mm. It was like if, around his 50-ish, wasn't he? Mm. Was, it, was he 50-ish? Yeah. Um, no, a bit older than that. Um, nearly 60-ish. What is he? 78. Yeah, 58. So mm. um, he was, what, 30-ish when he met you? 28 years. This has slowly built. Mm. And if he'd have expressed himself a bit more, been a bit more open with you, asked for help, got more help in the pub, because you guys were always having to, like get rid of staff and always dad was always like, I'm bloody working again. You can't bloody get the staff. The two worst things about business are staff and customers. 
And it was almost like he was always fighting it. Yeah. I remember when he had Stan for a bit in the um, White High Hotel. And for mm. a few years there, Dad was in his flow, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, because he had a yeah. really good barman. And then when you lost mm. Stan and that went a bit wrong and his back sucked in again. So getting help, getting staff, you know, leveraging a bit. Not You don't have to do everything yourself. You don't have to be the like, Dad was a bit of one where we're like, oh, no one else can do it as good as me. I'll do it. I'll show them. Mm. And he'd always sort of like become the hero a bit like that. And, um, you know, I've learned in business, actually, you've, you've, I think it's really healthy to get a good PA, to get a good staff. Mm. You're, you're allowed a day off. You're allowed a weekend off. Mm. You're allowed to do some things that you enjoy. Work does, you know, some of this American hustle grind 10x, you've got to spend 30 years working 18 hours a day if you want to make something in your life. No, if you want to be mentally ill, fucking do that. Mm. But what about exactly. a bit of, you know, what about looking after yourself, your health, your well-being, spending time with your kids? You can do that and build a business because I don't want the cost for someone to be their health mm. and well-being. And, and I think that's the bit that I felt like I wanted to say. Um, what else do you want to say? Well, I want to say that when Dad was in hospital, he was in for a whole month. That, what, the most recent time? Yeah. Yeah. He fortunately volunteered this time, so he was in Maple 2. So he didn't have his human rights taken away from him and he did have freedom to come and go as he pleased. And the thing that I did notice was that there was hardly any visitors. So as soon as, in my experience, people hear that Dad's not well again, no one's ever sure what to do. And I finally learned after all these years that what I need to do is organise everyone and say, right, you visit on a Saturday, you visit on a Monday, you phone him on a Wednesday, and I need to organise all our friends and people that know because to help Dad, because I'm sure it does help. I mean, Dad... If he didn't have me, he would just would have been in hospital for, for a month. And it really is quite a depressing place. Mm. He did befriend a couple of people in there. And there was one guy who'd um, he'd lost all his money by wrong investments, by bad choices. And he was there because he sinked into a very dark depression because his wife left him and his children won't speak to him. So maybe if they had a bit of mentoring and realised that, you know, their um, dad needed some help, then he might not be find himself on his own. Mm. But, yeah, I'd definitely organise everyone to phone or visit because everyone just, because they don't know, disappears. Yeah. And I met um, Jane, my friend, the other day because you'd spoke, she'd bumped, bumped into you and you'd spoken to her. Yeah. Because, you know, she wasn't sure. But, of course, when Dad... Well, because it's like a, it's, a, it's not as taboo as it used to be. No, but, but it's But you don't still... know what to do. No, you don't. And I know from my experience, like, I've learned this about myself over the years. My reaction to any problem is to try and fix it as quickly as possible. And I've learned this with my wife and to a certain degree with you and with Dad. That's actually often not what is required. As an entrepreneur, if there's a problem, fix it, problem, fix it, and I'm a bloody good fixer. Mm. But sometimes like when we talk, I have this propensity to try and fix. Mm. And I'm like, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. And I know sometimes because I feel it, you're like, well, 
that's not really what I'm looking for. Sometimes I just need to go blah. Mm. And I'm not the best listener. I'm a better fixer. Yeah. Um, and so if you're a fixer but you don't know how to fix, I don't know how to fix that. Mm. So that's hard for me because, okay, well, I've got no value. And just, you know, for me, just sort of sitting there, I feel like a bit useless. But I have actually realised that just sitting there is useful. Mm. And yeah. not everyone's going to be able to relate to that. But, you know, like with my wife, a lot of the time, she just wants to talk. She doesn't want me to fix her problems. No. Same with my dad. Don't need to fix his problems. Same with you. Don't need to fix You, you know I can't fix it. Um, and so if I haven't been able to fix it, I've maybe been a bit scared. Mm. Or, you know, like, oh, I can't really add I any value here. That. So like, yeah. and then you just, then you get busy and then you hide yourself away. Um, and sometimes just being there is, is as good mm. as you can do. Yeah, I totally understand. The psychiatric nurse that came yesterday, because we're, um, we're under the care of the community nurse now, she said to Dad that if you'd been seriously ill or had an operation, then you'd be getting a lot more attention and you would need time to rest. And she said to him, if you're just sitting watching telly all day, then that's fine. Don't think you should be doing anything else because your mental illness has taken its toll mm. and you need to just rest and recover because it is just like any other illness and that's what we need to understand. It's just an illness that you come down with, but you, you will get better. Yeah. And because so in the last, say, 15 years, we have had stretches of three or four or five years where dad's been dad, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah, when a, it's been fine. Yeah. yeah. And then there's certain things that trigger it off again. So like if his medications goes wrong or... Yeah, steroids one time. Yeah, and then, or if he gets mm. into a bad sleep pattern. Yeah. So I'm no sleep expert. But there is a lot of evidence now. There was a, I remember reading business books 15 years ago. You know, you read up on what Margaret Thatcher or Donald Trump or whatever for three, four, five hours sleep a night. Oh, well, that's what you need to do to be in business. I remember trying that mm. and I struggled. And I mm. know I need eight. And yeah. now there's a load of science, a load, which basically says if you don't get a good night's sleep, that is going to really affect your mental and physical health mm. later down the line. I wonder, you know. Yeah, well, as you know, when Dad went into hospital, um, in he goes weeks with no sleep. He'd it? gone; it was six weeks without sleep. Yeah, and his body looked ninety, didn't it? Yeah, and he was just a a poor old thing to look at. But his brain was going mad; mm. it was thinking about stuff, and you couldn't settle. He was up and down, up and down, and yeah. you know, it's just crazy. And that's what gets him into hospital because they start worrying about his, his, his health. Yeah, but it's a shame, and I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not giving any I mean, advice or anything, but it's a shame that it has to get so bad that it affects the physical health mm. for them to get in and get the care they need because definitely this last time, I can't speak for every time, but definitely this last time he went into hospital too late because mm. you were like, you were done. Mm. And you were just like, I don't know what you thought it went on for about three or four months. Well, it, it first started in November last year. And then he went in in what, March? Because he couldn't come to Cayman this year. Mm. Taking you to Cayman most years and couldn't come this year, which was, you know, not the best. Um, 
Is there anything else you want to say? Because I want to make sure you get all your points across that you want to make. I think we've probably made most of them, but is there anything else you want to say? Yeah, if there's only one in Peterborough that's got somebody in Maple 1 or 2 that needs a visitor, I'm your person because I know how important that is. Mm. And there was one time when I went to visit Dad and somebody had brought a dog in. I think it's a, a patting club or something. And that ward was alive with laughter and smiles. Mm. And I thought, that is just amazing. Yeah. And I've done a bit of research and they get, there's a trust that um, Maple get access to when they want to do little extras. It's like a charity mm. trust. Anything you want to say to anyone who's got a family member or a loved one that's struggling? How do you get them help? Yeah, that is tough. And that's my quest in life is to try and get people better, quality help, useful help, yeah. not just to be told that you'll get better mm. or to go to a self-help group where you just sympathise with each other. You know, you need training and teaching yeah. and your mindset changing. So that's my mission. Um, but I have got a Facebook profile so if anyone wants to pm me i'd be happy to talk to anyone yeah it's but just your name just... sharon moore yeah 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 what about people going through it themselves because let's be honest that some people are going to know what, what yeah because about... because dad kind of knew he knew something was wrong yeah he first went to the doctor and was turned away then he went to a and e and he was turned away and it was the gardener, our gardener, who diagnosed Dad and told me how to get help because he was bipolar. Mm. And he put me on to um, the crisis team that I didn't know existed. Yeah. And it was they obviously just help you while you're in crisis mm. and it's a temporary thing. And these days it's 111. Yeah. So you just phone 111 and the answer message will tell you what mm. to do and get you through to a psychiatric team. Okay. And then how does one who's got someone they care about who's got it influence them? Because obviously you've had to have dad sectioned. You've had to try and convince dad not to get sectioned and go in of his own volition. Mm. How do you do that? Well, I did it this time. I've never achieved it before. It's always been sectioned. But this time, I think Dad, at 75, his body had had it. And he just, in the end, he just gave up. His back was against the wall and that was it. Yeah, because in some ways, it's been easier. Because, not, it has In been some easier. ways, not. But in other ways, because he's not going to go, I mean, walking down the street naked and nicking stuff out of supermarkets and dr driving all over the country and... He didn't have that in him this time, did he? No, and the funny thing is that, and I don't quite know what happens, but the facility of Maple 1 and 2 is that it provides some sort of magical area that calms somebody with bipolar down, whether it's because they find peace or whether it's because they've been taken out of the real world where they can cause mischief and mayhem and they're in a calm situation. I don't know what it is, but it all gradually stops while they're in hospital. Mm. 
And then when they come home, it's like the beginning of the recovery. It's yeah. not because they're better. Mm. It's just because they're calm. Yeah. So what was the original question? I can't remember, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, one thing I remember, the only time my dad's ever hugged me when I wasn't a little kid was when he came back from hospital, like when he was there for the longest. Mm. And, and it's, it's weird. I think I've picked up from my dad this slight, I'm a bit freaked out by affection or people complimenting me or whatever. Mm. But I remember giving him a big hug and he came in for it. I didn't go in for it. He gave it and when he came out, we, was, we were still in the pub then. Mm. I'll definitely um, cherish that one. Yeah, I bet. It's a shame of the situation, but felt really good. Mm. Yeah. Anything else you want to sign off with? I don't think so. No. I mean, we didn't want this to be a depressing thing, no, did we? No, not at all. Um, no, because it... Because the dad's still here, which mm. I'm so grateful for. And in the 15... 16 years, we've had periods of four or five years when it's been good and dad's been normal. I mean, dad doesn't do social media and listen to podcasts and stuff like that. So, you know, we, I feel okay doing this, that mm. we're not talking out of line. But I, I, I don't want to wait till my dad's dead to be able to embrace this and deal with this. Mm. Um, I need to see him more. I know that. I have moments where I see him a bit, but dad sort of stays in the house and I get busy and... I know I need to commit to that a bit more. Um, obviously, he does plenty of work for us from time to time, doesn't he? Yeah. And, mm. um, that's a great thing. Um, yeah, well, this, this time, I think what I want to do is teach Dad his early warning signs. Yeah. I've been doing more research because I thought, I can't keep going through this. And... Dad at 75, if he has another one in four years' time, he's going to be 79. And it, it has a terrible impact on the body. Mm. And I'd like him to be able to reach in the cupboard and get a box of oxos out, which is his very first sign, because that means his taste buds are heightened. Mm. He puts four oxos in a, in a mug, fills it with hot water, and I want him to phone the community psychiatric nurse and say, I've just drunk a mug of oxos. And yeah. she says, right, I'll be round. Mm. So everybody understanding and knowing what the early signs are, mm. instead of having to go for so long yeah. before anyone takes any notice. Mm. I think that's a good place to end good. the podcast. Perfect. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I hope you feel this has been beneficial, a bit different. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything else to say other than if you don't risk anything, you risk, you risk everything. everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rob. All right.